Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to turn the uh, AC up a little bit, or on at least, so just get some air for her. Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. But it so happened that when Symbolet heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah, verse 3, the Ammonite was beside him and said, Whatever they build, if even a fox jumps on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, and they told us ten times, From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone do his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that as we study it and as we sit before you, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. 
We thank you for your great grace and your mercy that's extended to us every single day, God. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us understand how you would have us go forward with what you've called each of us to do and how you've called us as a church to go forward based on the fact that you are leading us and guiding us and that you said that you'd build our church. And so we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would make application as only you can. We yield our hearts to you, Lord. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've gone over, it's around 445 B.C. at this time when Nehemiah is, has been called to lead God's people in rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Zerubbabel had led the first wave of Jews back to Jerusalem in 536 B.C. It had been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, and he had three major campaigns that he waged against uh, the children of Israel in Israel, there and talking about the southern kingdom there and he had his final uh, conquering uh, basically siege was in 586 and so Zerubbabel was able to lead uh, their their the this first first wave back in three 536 BC and then a year later they started rebuilding the temple it took them Zerubbabel and the workers 19 years to complete that second temple in the year 516 it was completed 61 years later Ezra led another group of Jews back to the promised land which included 1500 men with their uh, families so now it's been even further from that 10 years later after Ezra read back those led back those 1500 men and their families now it's 445 he's heard this report that the city is, is in disrepair, the walls are broken down, and the gates have been burned down and so forth. It breaks his heart. And he has a heart to be able to be yielded to the Lord to where when he hears something like that, God can move on him, and God has moved on him. He didn't just start making plans right away. He went away to prayer. He fasted, and he prayed, and he spent four months seeking the Lord and asking him for the opportunity for the boldness, I'm sure, for the, just all of the things needed because he knew it would take something beyond himself, uh, a lot of resources beyond himself, to be able to accomplish this work. And what we saw is that God provided him letters so that he could pass through certain places on the way from Babylon to Israel. God also provided a military escort to protect him and his team uh, to go back to Jerusalem. And not only that, I would say most importantly, he provided building materials for this building project. You know, we are in this book in part because we're getting ready to start, you know, renovating a, a new building and all of that. And there's a lot of things that could come against us when you, when you start something like this. The enemy knows what can come out of something like this, not just a building, but yielded vessels that are in a building wanting that building to be used for God's glory. But it's not just that. It's also our own lives. Because as Christians, we go through tremendous warfare and difficulty. Jesus promised that. We don't like to claim that promise a lot. You know, when he said, you know, there will, you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
The false teachers teach that everything happens for our, in our favor all the time. If we have enough faith and all these things, we never go through any trials unless they're self-inflicted. God never allows things like that. And we only get good things from God always, every time. What kind of parents would we be if we only gave our kids what they wanted? <laughs> You'd be calling CPS on us. Because, you know, we would be, it's damaging to give people with, with a certain level of maturity everything that they want. And God knows that for us as well. How many prayers are we thankful that he didn't answer? Because he knew what was best. So this, all of this is very relevant. You may think, well, this is thousands of years ago or whatever, and, you know, it doesn't have much relevance. There's the, whole, the same Holy Spirit who, in, who led Nehemiah and called Nehemiah to this task lives inside of us and inspired this Bible. And he knows that we're in a battle every single day as believers. Before you come to know Christ, you're going downstream. You think everything's good. You're not really feeling the current until you start doing that U-turn. And you start trying to go upstream. You're like, wow, I didn't realize there was a current. Yeah, there's a current. It's your sinful nature. It's the enemy. It's the ways of this world. We have to deal with all the things that this world has to deal with out there in addition to all of the things that they don't deal with because they're not on the right side of truth. So we have to know how to deal with these things. Now, last week we saw God recognize 38 individuals and 42 groups of people by listing them all by name, and he did it on purpose for everybody to see. For him to, for people to see, these are the people that served, he noticed them. There are people that chose not to serve, he listed them too. Swallow. You know, he notices. He notices who takes part, who doesn't. We also saw this very important couplet of words next to, and next to him, and next to him, and next to him. There's all this interconnected language that we see when you're on the wall and you're working, and next to him was so-and-so, and next to him was so-and-so. It wasn't a bunch of individual people who collectively, in their aggregate, make up the workers for this incredible task. They're interconnected, just like Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, by what every joint supplies. We're all interconnected. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. It's like in any situation when the body of Christ suffers or has triumphed, we all rejoice with them. We're all interconnected. And if we want to grow as believers, we have to be serving. It's just a fact. Jesus is a servant. You can't be like Jesus unless you're serving. And that can take many different expressions. We know that. It can be outside this church. It can be serving in some ministry. Wonderful. But it has to happen. But many times the ways that we grow the, mo- the most is by locking shields with somebody else, getting to know them and serving next to them and learning from them and them learning from us. It's so beautiful to see how interconnected, how beautiful the body of Christ has been designed to function. Verse 1, we're told this. But it so happened when Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Now, last week we saw, as we finished chapter 3, some victories in there. But usually after a victory is a but. <laughs> See the but in verse 1? But so it happened. Oh, man, what's coming? What's coming is opposition. There's never been a work of God that hasn't had opposition come against it. And the visible things that we see kind of translate to us of victories. So we, many times we see victories because we see outward fruit and we see these things, but we don't see the, the, the attacks always. We don't see the buffeting. We don't see the, the thorn in the flesh like Paul had. We don't see 
all of the things that happen behind the scenes. But when you start serving, when you start being used by the Lord, that's going to happen. Someone has said that as Christians, we are constantly building and battling. Double Bs. Building and battling. Building and battling. There's always going to be a battle when we start to build. Now, this is a physical project, but it's, of course, for us, in many ways, it's a spiritual project. Trying to build our house. Having our house be a godly home. There's going to be opposition to that. Trying to be a witness at work. Trying to be a good example at work. And work is under the Lord. Not trying to get too political and ruin your witness, you know, but you're trying to be a servant. It's getting bad out there related to politics. I'm glad that God's above all of that. So here we see Nehemiah here, and he's recording that this, this cat, can I call him a cat? You know, Sam Ballot, he heard that he w- <laughs> we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant. How many people have heard what God has been leading you to do and get upset? Now here, this guy is the governor of Samaria, we're told in extra-biblical documents. But it would, he, didn't, he doesn't have to be someone from an, you know, another kind of government or whatever. He could be anybody. It could be someone in our family, which hurts the worst. And you'd think that they'd be happy for what the, God's calling you to, but sometimes those people are the, fight you the most, and you have the opposite, they have the opposite reaction that you would expect We are called to build and expand the kingdom of God. Do we think the enemy is going to take that lying down? Especially if it's a spirit-directed, Bible-based ministry, he's really not going to like that. He's not going to take it lying down. We can underestimate what's out there in terms of the attacks that are coming. It It shouldn't make us waver. We should still obey what God's called us to do. But we also need to be aware of the enemy's devices. You know, and Peter told us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's a real threat. He plays for keeps. He doesn't play fair. He'll kick you when you're down. He'll heap on in it, on addition, additional uh, you know, condemnation and, and threats and mockery and all this stuff on top of others when you're at your weakest moment of your weakest moments. He will do it. And it, it shouldn't surprise us, but sometimes it does. You know, last week we saw that there were goldsmiths, perfumers. Uh, he, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He tasted the king's wine before he drank it. Not a highly skilled position. It was a very trusted position, but not highly skilled. We saw priests, all diverse backgrounds. They all had Jerusalem in common and God in common. They loved God. They loved Jerusalem and all of that. They, they had an incredible sense of love for God and his people and what God was doing. But they also experienced opposition as well together. They, 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 that's okay. We'll just take a break here. There we go. I'll take that as an amen. So they all experienced opposition together as well. They were all getting hammered all at the same time too. They had diversity and they had great blessings associated with diversity. But they also had opposition together. And the enemy wants them, wanted them to quit. You know, we, we do a school of pastoral ministry here. I told the guys in orientation, the number one thing God is trying to, to prevent you from doing and the enemy's trying to do is to get you to quit. Because if he can quit your preparation time, he's going to really have success when you're out there really serving people and affecting lives. But it's not just them. He wants to quit our marriages. 
He wants to have us quit being faithful to our spouses. He wants to have us quit being godly examples to our kids. He wants us to quit. That's what the enemy wants us to do, to quit. And that's why God tells us in his word that we're to stand. Stand. Hold your ground. Even when you're weak, stand. We all stand by God's grace anyway. Ask for more of God's grace to stand, to hold your ground. God will honor all of that. He wants us to quit. Maybe you have unbelieving family that don't know the Lord. You've given up on preaching the gospel to them. The enemy wants you to quit. Until their last breath, you have an opportunity to preach them that gospel. That beautiful gospel. Don't quit. Don't quit praying for them. You know, God hasn't called us as believers to be marked by a life of quitting. That's not what he has for us. Yes, he changes things up. He, re- he readjusts us. He leads in different ways. There are ends the ministries end and have births and all that. I understand all of that. But I think we need to hear afresh from God that we need to stick with things. When things get hard, when we want to quit, when everything in our being is yelling at us to quit, no, I'm not going to quit because he told me to do this and I'm going to do it until he tells me not to do it. That's what God calls us to do. Because why? Because we're more than conquerors. Because God doesn't quit. He doesn't quit on us. He doesn't quit on our kids. He doesn't quit on our grandkids. He doesn't quit on anybody. Anyone that doesn't know Christ, he doesn't quit on. So he hasn't called us to quit. Whatever God has called you to build, the enemy wants to stop it. And your job is to not be strong in yourself. Your job is to be more dependent upon him, to go to God and remember that God's good hand is upon you, just like we saw at the beginning of this book. God's good hand is upon you. That doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. It keeps going and going. I don't want to be like the Energizer Bunny, but it does keep going and going like like that kind of idea. I think that one of the things believers in general, and I'm speaking to myself, are, are the least prepared to handle is spiritual opposition. It surprises us. You ever notice if you're married to, and you're married to a Christian, which I'm hoping... Um, sometimes when you're at your weakest, they're at, your strong, they're at their strongest and vice versa, and you're getting pummeled, and they're just like spiritual mountaintop to spiritual mountaintop, you know, or vice versa. Usually you're not both down as, as far as, you know, you can be at once, usually. Sometimes you're on mountaintops together, but usually you're not in the depths together. And that's God's grace right there. It happens. But it's, it's amazing to see that sometimes we can be so surprised by opposition some believers they refuse to engage the spiritual realm and then they're smacked down by the enemy's devices that they're ignorant of some believers um, they blame everything on the enemy they'll spend all their time binding satan and doing all these things that aren't biblical and so forth and and they spend their old time all their time fixating upon what the enemy's doing giving credit to the enemy way more than than he has he should get the credit for and they're not focusing on the lord we're supposed to submit ourselves to the lord and resist the devil but we're supposed to submit first so we can get all messed up we can think that you know um Everything that's bad in my life is a result of the enemy. But so often we, it's our own choices or the fact that our flesh has been involved. We haven't put off the old nature. We haven't been having devotions or we haven't had a time where we're yielded to him and we're falling into temptation and then we're blaming it on Satan or worse yet, we're blaming it on God. So we have to properly process these things. 
We all, we're all growing. We know that. We know God's grace, gracious and so forth. But we're going to learn some principles through this book that are going to help us with that kind of battle. Because if we don't realize that we're in a battle, that's the first loss of our war <laughs> or the battle. We, we've lost already in a sense because we don't realize that we're in a war. Notice that Sambal in verse 1 was furious and very indignant. We're told he mocked. Is that a big deal? Yes. Is it effective? Is mockery effective? It's yes. It's effective. This guy was the governor in Samaria. He's gonna going to be, you know, these people are gonna be a threat to his authority there. And he mocks and he mocks and he mocks. And does the enemy mock us with lies most of the time or facts? Usually facts. I mean, whoo, got that fly out of there. Might get stuck in this dew here, and that would be bad for him. Um, but he lies with facts. They're facts in the sense of from, from a certain perspective, but what he doesn't include is all the facts. See, there's things that he leaves out conveniently. He'll say certain things that are true about us in light of our failures and our shortcomings, but he won't talk about the facts related to all of God's promises, all of God's grace, all of God's, you know, how he's forgiven us, how he's promised a future, that he's gracious, he's loving, he's, you know, none of these things surprised him. He paid for all our sins on the cross, even the ones we haven't forget, uh committed yet his word is true his spirit is is i mean there's so many things that he leaves out relevant things that he leaves out he's very very furious and very indignant with this mocking now notice in verse 2 symbolic voices doubts to his people and he spoke before his brethren and the army of samaria and said what are the, these feeble jews doing will they fortify themselves Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Basically, Sabalit is saying, can they succeed? How can they succeed? Can they succeed? And the answer is yes. Why? Because there's a whole other set of facts that he isn't looking at, and the fact is that God's good hand is upon them, that God has called them to do this. And if God's called them to do it, he's going to supply them everything that they need and they're going to get the victory. It's important for us to to see that. The enemy always focuses on what's wrong. He always highlights the, the, and I tell people serving in ministry, I always say, the ones that are, are hard in terms of being able to reach them or have them start obeying the Lord more, whatever, the things that you're frustrated with, those people are the ones the enemy wants you to fixate on and not fixate on the greater by far majority that are receiving and are growing and all of that. You know, the average senior pastor resigns over seven people. No matter how big the church is, focuses on what's wrong. The enemy loves to focus on what's wrong. That's why when you bring up something to another believer that's wrong, you need to also have encouragement and wisdom and knowledge and, and things that have to do with how to improve the situation. I learned a long time ago as an assistant pastor, don't go in with a problem without some ideas about how it could be fixed and solutions for it. Because all I'm doing is just burdening the the pastor with that now instead of coming with some suggestions that we could pray over. See, the truth is the Jews were actually feeble. He wasn't lying. They were feeble. And in the flesh or in the natural, there's no way that they could do what what they were wanting to do. So he he didn't make anything up. If you want to do anything for God, you're going to hear these things. Who do you think you are? You barely graduated high school. 
you used to be a break dancer, whatever it is. You know, um, you, know you took freshman English three years in a row. Um, or you never graduated high school, or you come from a very bad background, or you have this pedigree, or you sinned so much in the past, that you, you, you think you're going to do what? You think God uses those types of people? Hello, the Apostle Paul. I'm so glad God saved the Apostle Paul, because none of us came close to anything that he did on so many levels. Yeah, their lies keep coming. Your damaged goods You've already passed your window. You're too old. You're, you're, you don't speak well. I mean, on and on and on it goes. All these things, all these things come our way. There's no hope for you. Lies, all lies on so many levels. Our past doesn't define us. Even our current struggles don't define us. God defines us. His word defines us. And sometimes our inner voice, apart from the enemy, can be the loudest one, can't it? We're our hardest critics sometimes. But you know what? Your opinion of yourself doesn't even matter. All that matters is what God thinks of you. And he probably has, for most of us at many times in life, he has a higher view of us than we have of ourselves. He knows we're the foolish things of this world. He knows that we're not qualified in the world's standards and all of that. He knows our shortcomings, all of those things. But he knows, because we know that, that we'll be more dependent upon him. And when he works and does a work, then he will get glory, not us. So we, I tell people all the time, and I tell myself, don't put any limitations on what God can do through your life. The people that don't put any limitations by what they think of themselves, by what others have said about them, what their family thinks of them, whatever it is, that just completely remove all of that and say, God, use me. I don't care what it is. Use me. I'll go anywhere, anytime to do anything for you. It'll be a privilege to be able to be used by you in that way. Those are the people that are used exponentially far beyond anything they could ever dream of. That's what he wants for each one of us. God goes to and fro across the earth seeking who has, who has a heart directed towards him. He's seeking those types of people. Notice in verse 3, Tobiah adds to the mockery. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break it, he will break down their stone wall. So he's even specific with the sex of the fox, that it's a he. That's how, that's how specific his mockery is. Um, all of this is mocking their ability, mocking their ability. Again, was this partly based on fact that they were feeble? Absolutely, absolutely true. But you know what was also true? David was small and outmanned, so to speak, against Goliath. Gideon was outnumbered. The walls of Jericho were very strong, very tall, very fortified. The Red Sea was impassable, and Pharaoh's army was the real deal. And the disciples were carnal and self-seeking when Jesus chose them. And the truth is, we are the foolish things of this world meant to confound the wise. All of those things are true, but those are one set of facts. The other set of facts are that God is limitless with what he has for us in supplying all of what we need to be able to do what he's called us to do. I love when the Apostle Paul said, by God's grace, he put me into the ministry. He had all the religious qualifications, way more than all of us here combined. He was taught by the great Gamaliel, rabbi. He had all those things. He exceeded all of his peers, but yet he considered all of those things worthless compared to the calling that God had on his life in the new covenant. He said he was born as one of the apostles as like a stillborn. He was not considered in his mind one of the apostles in that way. So 
That's for us, that's the true reality. Now, look at how Nehemiah deals with, with this in verse 4. He, he starts with prayer. Hear, O, hear, o our God. And I just want to pause there because he begins there, and notice he doesn't answer Sam Ballard or Tobiah. That's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to answer our critics. We want to do a 3 a.m. tweet. <laughs> you know, we want to stand up for ourselves. Let me ask you this. How much do you think David was concerned about what the nation of Israel thought of him when he was running from Saul for 10 years? When he knew he was a, when he knew he was a infinitely superior you know, uh, man of war, and he had, most importantly than all of that, though, his, his anointing that he had and all of that from God. God had chosen him, and he allowed the whole nation to come to the wrong conclusion about him because he could have taken his life many times. He allowed the whole nation to come to the wrong conclusion about him because he was going to obey what God said and knew that he wasn't the one to take out Saul, that God was the one that was going to take out Saul. So if the enemy knows that we will chase around our reputation, then he will set fires all over the place. And as it's been said, it's our job to keep, keep our character right. It's his job to keep our reputation right. And if we do that, people won't even listen to any lies about us because they'll know our established character over a long period of time will stand above any kind of accusation. But listen to his prayer. For we are despised. Turn the reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Now, it wasn't just that Nehemiah was concerned about how they looked for their sake. He knows that they're connected to God and he wants them to continue to be a reflection of him. They want to draw people to God just like we should. And he knew that. Now, we can't pray verse 5 as believers. <laughs> uh, do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out before you. All those things. That's an old, that's an, we're in the new covenant. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. We're supposed to serve those that despitefully use us and all those things. We are supposed to do that. But look at the end of verse 5. He says, they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Who are the builders? It's them. See, it's their... It's their reputation that, I mean, God's reputation that they're, that they're focused on. And, and so, you know, against whom did Sanballat and Tobias speak? Who were they provoking? It was the Lord. That's what he said. So when you're getting attacked, when you're getting attacked by the enemy, you need to think about um, God's reputation. You have to think about the fact that they're ultimately speaking against God when they're speaking against you. And that because of that, you're just, you're just a tool, you're just a vessel, you're just, through, you're just someone that God is using. But ultimately, God's the one that's responsible for uh, what people say, and they're ultimately speaking against them. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to, to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Said that when he did to the Christians, he was doing to, to Jesus himself. They were just builders. In this, in this context here. They were just the builders. And, and look with me at the end of verse 5. Before the builders, they recognize that they're just vessels, that God is overseeing the whole entire project. God is the superintendent. He's the one that's overseeing the whole project. They are just yielded vessels. And so we, ha- we, we have to recognize when the enemy comes to mock us, we need to not answer him. 
We need just to pray and take that to the Lord. Don't answer him. He's not worthy of anything that we have. Pray to God, honoring him with your faith. And sometimes we forget that. It's like sometimes we can think that that's obvious, but it's not always obvious for us when we get in the heat of the moment because we want to defend ourselves. But God hasn't called us to worry about a reputation. He calls us to worry about God's reputation and to be faithful in what he's called us to do. Verse 6, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So it's halfway up now, the wall there. The people had a mind to work, and that shows that their heart's in the right place. It shows that their heart was in it. They weren't doing it as a result of being forced to do it. This is something they chose to do, that they wanted to be a part of. That's exactly what we want related to ministry. Forced ministry is not ministry. You can't force a servant to be a servant. A servant, the kind that he's called us to be, are willing servants. We're willing. We're wanting to do what's right. We're wanting to do what's appropriate. We're wanting to bless people and all of that. And we can't miss that God saw that at the end of verse 6. For the people had a mind to work. Now the next attack are threats. Verse 7. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were, being, were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. So in verse 1 of the chapter, we're told they're furious. Now we're told they're very angry. And so they can see the progress just like we can. When God's doing a work, we see a progress and so forth, but the enemy sees it as well. And verse 8 says, And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion notice it says all of them conspired together not just a few not some of them all of them conspired to come against them and he names all these areas because it if you look geographically they're all from all sides so they're basically being surrounded and they're feeling the pressure of that encroachment getting smaller and smaller and smaller So mockery didn't work, but now they're threatening them, and now they're coming closer. And so, you know, now that the the physical threats have to come in their mind, and, and so they unite. Now, the church is learning how to unite more and more, but the enemy doesn't have to learn how to unite. I'm not even going to talk, get into politics, you know, but, uh, you know, all I know is that when God starts working, he starts doing a work, it's so easy for the enemy to unite forces, Not just he's working with people's flesh, he's working with sometimes uh, city agencies. There are believers in city agencies, don't get me wrong, but there are sometimes people that that the enemy uses to make things more difficult. There's this unity that happens sometimes in opposition, and we have to be on guard against that. Verse 9, nevertheless we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. So they prayed. And that's important. Obviously, submitting to God, we've already seen that. You know, in Mark 13, we're told that he said, take heed, watch, and pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, told Peter, James, and John to watch and to pray. Paul later would write to the church of Ephesus in chapter 6, verse 18, this, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And the context is prayer. When you're feeling attacked, the very first thing you should do is pray. 
There is nothing other, better to, to do. There's not a better idea in the room. What we need to do is pray when you're being attacked. And you need to, if you need to remove yourself out of the situation and go pray to where, remember the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. We have the capacity by God's grace and His power to walk in self-control anytime we want to as we yield ourselves to Him. And we pray, God, give me self-control right now. I'm losing control. You know that. Help me just to get control right now and be appropriate in the situation how you would want me to be. To say the things you want me to say. To act in the way you want me to act. Have the motives you want me to have. Help me. And he'll, he'll do it every single time. So we need to do that. We need to pray. How have you responded in prayer when you've been under attack? Is it immediate? Is it immediate? Is it, is it prolonged? Is it, does it take a few moments? Does it, how, what does that look like? And I think that he also adds here to, to set a watch because in that moment as you pray, you have an incredible uh, wisdom from God that comes for the situation. Now, you, we may think that that's you know, common sense, but that may not have been common sense at the moment. There's a lot of things that we think we automatically would think of, but it doesn't happen until we start praying and we start seeking him, and then he starts giving us practical wisdom. And so we see that, and we see the effects of the attacks set in also in verse 10. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. So here you start to see some discouragement setting in. They've been mocked. They've been threatened. They're starting to feel surrounded, and now it's starting to have its effect. The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. I mean, again, these, these mockery and these things and these assessments are true many times from one perspective. But there's a whole other set of facts, and this is what we're called to do as believers when we're under attack and the enemy or ourselves or whatever starts pointing out true things or factual things we need to look for the other set of facts that are true in the situation. Yeah, that's true, but this is true. Yes, that is true, but what about this verse? Yeah, that's true, but so-and-so said this to me and encouraged me the other day before all this happened. Or, yes, this is going on, but there was a prophecy that, that lined up with Scripture that God gave me beforehand. There's always compensating facts that we have to pay attention to and remind ourselves of in the middle of an attack. The enemy doesn't play fair. Again, he doesn't... He's not shy about kicking us when we're down. Judah acknowledged reality. The strength of those laborers were failing. <laughs> and, and there was a lot of, I like you could tell this is King James, rubbish. Uh, a lot of garbage around. Remember the 12 spies? They went away to go into Israel when the Jews had left Egypt. There were these 12 spies and 10 of those spies came back with a bad report. And really, it wasn't bad in the sense of being necessarily inaccurate with what they were describing. I mean, there was some hyperbole and exaggeration there. But what they left out was the other set of facts. And that's what, the, that's what Caleb, Joshua and Caleb included. That God, this is nothing for our God. This is nothing. I mean, think about what he's done in our lives. Think about how he delivered us through the Red Sea and the plagues and all these things. God has a track record with us. When we're being attacked, we need to think about God's track record with us. And we need to think about the other set of facts that's equally true. And we need to realize that if we weren't being used by God, and we weren't in the middle where he had, had 
you know, have us placed, then we wouldn't be getting attacked. Sometimes people say, oh, I've never been attacked. I've never experienced spiritual warfare. I would assess your spiritual fruitfulness, honestly. Because if you're not a threat, there's not going to be a lot of attack. Even though he does hate us and he does want to hurt us, regardless of what we're doing for God, he still, he's still um, usually attacks because of, of those things that we're, we're doing. Verse 11. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and, and cause the work to cease. Now rumors are coming. This is still Joshua, or yeah, Judah rather. He's still speaking and he's still saying what these rumors are. And we have to recognize that rumors are going to come and we still have to assess what God's word says. Just because rumors come doesn't mean that they're true. It doesn't mean that it changes what God is doing or what he says related to the situation. Look at verse 12. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, as if you know a few wasn't enough, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Now outside voices are bad enough, but inside voices are the hardest to deal with many times. Sometimes they knock the wind right out of us, don't they? Attacks from within, and we're going to get to that next chapter. Attacks from within and, and beyond that, we're going to see. And they're, they're the most, actually, they're the most effective. Attacks from within. Because they're the most hurtful. They catch us off guard. And sometimes we can sense when we're in the middle of doing something for God and we're in the middle of something, we can sense that circle of opposition closing in on us closing in on us and we never dreamed that it would, those, the circle of opposition would come even in within the walls of our house and then they come within the walls of our house and then we're, we're like I, can't, I, I thought that these people may turn on me or that these people would turn their backs on me or say this or come against me but in my own house in my own marriage in my own, my own children you're trying to do what's right and you feel like everything's coming against you men listen to me you have to be the man that God's called you to be in your home. You have to stand up for what's right. You're the head of that home. You're going to have to give an account for everything that happens in that home and in that marriage. And you have to stand, even if your whole family is standing against you. And I'm not talking about unbiblical things that you're wanting to do or, you know, um, I'm not saying not listen to them. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to them at, at times or often. Of course, those things are true. I'm talking about when it's a clear cut against Scripture. You are standing the line. You are standing on what God's Word says. And you're, let's just hypothetically, your whole family's against you on this. You stand strong because you're going to have to give an account before God. Stand your ground and stand for what God's Word says. Or if you're at a position, any position of authority, and you know what the right thing to do is, and everybody's against you. You have to lead. That's what leaders do. They lead when no one else wants to follow sometimes. <laughs> no one else agrees. You have to lead. You have to, now you have to make sure that you're on solid ground with God's word, of course. And we need to bounce those things off people and take in counsel and the, and the, and the, and the multitude of counselors, their safety. We understand that. But in this, in this culture, it's getting harder and harder for people to stand up for what's right. And we need to have that fortitude to stand for what's true and what's biblical and what's right and be an example of that by God's grace and by his power. Verse 13. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings and I set the people according to their families. 
with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So he puts families together. That's a lot of wisdom right there. There's a lot of unity within a family. There's a lot of motivation to stay safe and to do your job to protect everybody because its family units are together. They're not going to be distracted by wondering where their family members are. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. I want to stop there for a second. Sometimes we just need to say, Stop being afraid. Maybe you're the one in your house to say it. Maybe someone else says it to you. We, yes, it's a human emotion. We have to deal with it at times. But it's true that we are not supposed to walk in fear. Our lives are not supposed to be wrapped around fear. We're supposed to be walking in faith, in trusting God, with honoring him with our actions, our thoughts, our motives, our everything. He's honoring him with faith and not Fear. So he says, do not be afraid of them. He continues, remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. It's not good enough just to not be afraid. You have to remember something. Remember the Lord. Remember he's almighty. He's all-powerful. He's the one that called our ancestors to this land. He's the one that gave us this land. He's the one that gave us the blueprint for the temple, the tabernacle and the temple. He's the one that set up the sacrificial system. He's the one that appointed the priests. He's the one that called the prophets that warned us that we were in disobedience when we were serving false gods and not resting our land that got us in Babylon in the first place. He's the one that delivered us out of that land. He's the one that supplied everything that we need to do this task. We need to remember the Lord. Whatever you're going through, whatever the battle is, remember the Lord. Why does he have to tell us that? Because we forget him. Why does he have us enjoy communion? Because we'll forget. We have to remember him. We need to live by example by remembering him and remembering that he's great and awesome. I'm sorry, but these chumps here, and I have to call them chumps in these verses, these chumps are nothing compared to God. He's awesome and mighty. I remember when I was a new Christian, someone was trying to describe to me the power of God and the power of Satan. They were saying like Satan was like a flea and, and God was like, you know, a massive giant. And, you know, of course, I was thinking that the, the giant from the whatever that vegetable company is, green giant, you know, and, and that's just my brain. OK, you know where I'm coming from with my crazy brain. But, you know, even that comparison isn't even a compare. Like you can't compare God with anything. There is no other category to compare him with. He's in a he's all by himself. And we are more than conquerors, church. We are more than conquerors. I would be love just to be a, a conqueror. I've always wanted to be a conqueror in anything. But we're more than conquerors. He calls us to start walking like it. And that requires us to remind each other, to be gracious with each other, to be in prayer, all those things. But we need to exhort one another to walk as more than conquerors. Interesting that he, that he says that. Then he says in verse 14, I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. And he continues, remember the Lord. And then he says, and fight for your brethren. Not fight with your brethren. <laughs> fight for your brethren. Now, this is, the, this is a good principle in the middle of a battle. Especially in our homes. We're feeling attacked or whatever. And we can attack the very ones that God has placed in our lives to be a strength to us in a time of vulnerability. We can lash out at them. 
And that is, that is, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We are called to fight for our brethren, for our families, for our loved ones, not fight with them in the middle of an attack. The time when we're in the attack, we need to be united with the people that are for us because there's strength in numbers. I'm still convinced that this world has not seen the power of a united church. And I believe that that's going to happen. Maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that's going to happen before the rapture. That Not ecumenicalism and joining with false religions. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the true church coming together in unity and, and uniting as one. It's going to be such a huge blessing just to see the power of that. Verse 15. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing. Who brought their plot to nothing? God. And all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, the whole, the, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. So he had people spread out, very strategic places and all of that. God gave him wisdom. In the middle of battle, the middle of spiritual warfare, God can give very specific needed wisdom on how to configure the ministry to be best protected against warfare. And it's beautiful to see God do it here. Verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so with that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So they worked with one hand and they had another weapon in the other. It's a beautiful picture of God's word, having our swords with us, you know, serving giving our lives away, but having the sword of the Spirit ready at any moment, whether it's in our hearts or whether it's with us or we can recite it or read it or whatever. But, you know, there was a newspaper that Charles Spurgeon had. I heard one teacher talk about one time related to uh, just the sermon notes or whatever, and he called it the sword and the trowel because it, it it was coming from here related to us serving and giving our lives away and all those things, but yet you know, having the word of God with us and, and, and being ready to use it at any time that we have need of. Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound, the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us now how perfect is that you know when we hear the sound of the trumpet we're going to be rallying somewhere as believers now it's going to be up in the air when that trumpet sounds we hear the voice of the archangel and so forth but that's really important for us to understand that at any moment that he could come for us any moment and we're supposed to be working in a way to where we're occupying and we're taking our place on that wall, so to speak, in ministry. But at the same time, we're still looking up. We're told in Scripture to look up for your redemption draws near. So it's a balance between looking up and having expectation for him to come for us, but at the same time, I'm being faithful to what he's called us to do, called me to do. And I'm being faithful, and I'm serving, waiting for that trumpet. Beautiful. Verse 21. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars 
appeared. One thing I did skip over is that he talks that he says that our God will fight for us. That's like one of the biggest points of the passage, and I just skipped right over it. See? See how lame that is? But it's true. He will fight for us. He fights our battles. We don't fight our own battles. They're, they're praying to God. God, do all this stuff. Do all this stuff towards them. We're just builders. You just take care of everything. And that's what prayer does. We commit it to him. We entrust him with it. And then he takes care of everything and fights our battles. Who fought David's battle? With Saul. Saul was fighting against himself in reality. But God was fighting his battle for him. We don't have to fight our battles the enemy knows if he gets us sidetracked on these things, trying to protect our reputation trying, or trying to do things that only God can do, we're going to get sidetracked from the work. So we need to trust that God will fight our battles for us. It hurts. I know it hurts. I'm not minimizing the pain of having your character maligned. It's happened to me many times. And those of you that have been in ministry for a while or you've walked with the Lord for a while, you know what that's like. It's very hurtful. It's, I'm talking about detached from within. It's very hurtful. But we're still called to let God fight our battles. Verse 22. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that, there, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their, our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. And it literally has the, has the idea behind it that they went to the water with their weapon. That's how much on guard they were. And it's good because we've been told in Scripture, and many times I've mentioned it, to watch and pray, to be sober-minded, to be paying attention. That's what we have to be doing in the midst of a battle. And even before a battle is to be paying attention, to not have things take us off guard or at least minimize it as as much as possible. So we've seen mockery, threats, discouragement, fear, rumors, much of those rumors being true, much of this mockery being an accurate assessment from one perspective, but God had a whole other set of facts, and those facts are what anchor us. So we're called to have a heart to do the work. We're called to go to prayer in times of attack and weakness and all of that. We're called to watch, to pay attention to remember our God in the middle of an attack, that he's awesome and mighty, to remember our sword, and to know that he's going to give us practical wisdom in the midst of attack, and do all of this while we're listening for the trumpet. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for chapter 4. Thank you, Father, for all of the lessons that we found, and, and we know there's way more lessons than we've even been able to touch on today. Would you protect us, God? Would you, would you overwhelm us with your grace and your power, Lord, as we serve you and do what you've called us to do as fathers, as mothers, as grandparents, as children, as teachers, as students, whatever it is you've called us to, God, would you protect us and keep us focused on you and call upon you because we want to remember you, Lord. We want to honor you by remembering you in the midst of our attacks that we're experiencing. Thank you, Jesus, that you give us the victory, that you fight our battles. Thank you that you're coming back to snatch us away, to be with you. Thank you, Lord, that we're victorious, we're more than conquerors. Thank you, Lord, that your promises are yes and amen. Thank you, Lord, that nothing can separate us from your love. And you're, if you're for us, who could be against us? Lord, would you bring those verses back to our hearts when we're at our weakest? Thank you for your faithfulness to us when we're so weak, you are so strong. Your grace is made perfect in weakness. 
We thank you for this passage. We thank you all that's here. In Jesus' name, amen.